Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Now, today's guest has a lot of secrets. Secrets why he's had such outstanding success in the beef industry and secrets which I know he won't reveal to us today. But we can take a look at a remarkable career and achievements. David Blackmore is widely acknowledged as the leading Wagyu producer in Australia and possibly the leading Wagyu producer outside Japan. David, welcome. You're on the grill. Thank you, Pete Scary. Traditionally, but not always, our first question is, are you in control of the barbecue at home and how do you like your steak? <laughs> um, no, the pin tooth here is my, if our son Ben is at the barbecue, he's definitely in control. He's the uh, foodie and the, the meat expert in our family. How do I like my steak? Um, with Wagyu, and especially the full blood Wagyu, it doesn't want to be cooked too much. It wants to be cooked just enough so that the marbling gets reabsorbed back into the mutton. And I don't know whether people are really familiar that with the Wagyu that if we have a roast um, and the marbling is absorbed into the mutton, the next day there's some roast left over and you've had it in the fridge overnight, the marbling just reappears back into the meat again. So that's, that's the secret when you're cooking really good quality Wagyu that it's David, I'm getting, uh, I'm Not, getting, I'm getting hungry just listening to you. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you cook your own your own wagyu at home? Do you? Oh, probably. Yeah, look, we only get the ones that you know might have something go wrong with them. You know, get lame in the feedlot or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Look, if I'm allowed, I'll eat, I'll eat wagyu twice a day, and I certainly eat it once at and least I, once every day. And I suppose you get it for mates' rates anyway, wouldn't you? Well, it's. You know, if it's not going to make the market, you know, it doesn't even hit the tax, tax department. So, David, let's go back. You started life as a dairy farmer, did you not, along with other parts of your farming career? Is that where your well, interest in genetics started, way back in those dairy farming days? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think it's something that I was born with. I can remember, um, so prior to dairy farming, um, working on my grandfather's farm, and, and as a 10-year-old, I was given a cow... Um, for the work that I was already doing on on my grandfather's farm, and they were beef and sheep. So, started dairy farming when um, I left school. Dad, Dad decided to go dairy farming. So, you know, once if we got the two families, we we could afford it. Um, and um, but certainly, I sort of even had a kick way before you know, even as a ten year old, that cow was a roney cow, and I know that I went and bought a white short on bull that was putting over. Um, Holstein cold cows that was coming out of Dad's herd because I always saw these blue calves, blue roan calves, making more money in the sailing. And so my interest in genetics has been more about um, giving the buyer what they want. And um, but yes, it is it is a bit of a kink and something my family thinks I'm a bit crazy about. Yes, uh, moving on now. You were visiting Texas, I think it was, in the late eighties, nineteen eighty eight, perhaps, and you heard or read of four Wagyu cattle, they'd been exported from Japan to the US and you decided to investigate. Um, I was actually doing consultancy work down in Mexico for the Mexican government in Nestle and we were talking about, and that was about the um, AFS, which is a Soal cross breed that had been developed by the University of Queensland and talking about getting embryos and 
and semen down into Mexico with, with that breed. Um, and once I was down in Mexico, I could see their animal husbandry wasn't good enough that we were going to get, if we were going to get any pregnancies, the calves would probably die anyway. So I stopped in at Texas A&M University because they were doing a lot of early work and embryo work as well there. And it was there that I, I saw my first wagyus, and, and they were purebred wagyus that actually belonged to a fellow from, uh, by the name of Don Lively. So that was way back in 1988. So your interest in wagyu started then. How on earth did you do research then? Given there was this is all pre-internet, of course, and I'm guessing even in big libraries they would have had a limited material on wagyu. I mean, there was no carcass data whatsoever. Um, but look again, um, what I went back before said before is giving the customer what they want. I knew. Um, at, in 1990, the AMLC, which is the pre-runner to the MLA, um, had put out an article saying that if Australia listed its grade of meat by one grade, it was worth $20 million just in the exports to Japan. Now, as it turned out, they were talking about more cattle going into feedlots rather than grass-fed. Um, but in actual fact, I also knew with the work that I'd done Already in the US, but with one cross of wagyu, even even the purebred was going to lift the three marbling scores over traditional cattle that we had in Australia. And that's so again, a, I was just that, looking for what the customer wanted. And that, that's a lot of money. What, so, were the ka-ching dollars? Was that an intrinsic character of the wagyu that got you interested at first? Yeah, I can remember going and talking to the to the guy who owned them in the US, and and. He, I said to him, God, I don't know how I'm going to go back to Australia and describe what these cattle look like. They look like black shoes. They're ugly they cattle, David, like, aren't they? They're, they are ugly yeah, cattle. Look, if you're a traditional cattleman, you've got to get used to, to looking at them. Yes. Um, but yeah, Don Lively just said to me straight back, he said, they just look like money to me, son. Looks like money. That's a good that, That's a good complex. That would have pricked your ears up, certainly. Well, uh, I, I, I read where you actually still use, in Australia, you still use some of the uh, the growing and breeding techniques that have been used for centuries in Japan. Is that right, to, to make your... Yeah, make look, your... We, and, 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 and to a certain extent, we've even gone back and done a little bit more now in the last few years. We're getting good results. We're, like, for instance, we're weaning our calves at five months of age and, and then putting them on a uh, weaner ration, which is really what happens in Japan. And we're getting some, you know, really good results. Um, and they stay on that weaner ration for 100 days. So sort of, you know, at, at that eight, nine months of age, we've got them to 300 kilos. And then from then on, then they go under a background of ration before they enter the feedlot proper. And, um, you know, that, those rations aren't expensive. They're, they're high roughage ration, but at least we can control the, the, the growth rate on the cattle and getting those setbacks, whether it be, you know, seasonal setbacks, you know, middle of winter in Victoria, you know, it's hard to put weight on cattle and, sort of, you know, this time of the year is probably the worst time of the year. So, you know, that, that's really traditionally what they do in Japan and, and, you know, there is a lot of things that we do. And what I've learned, and, and Mr. Nikita, who is the, the guru of Wagyu out of Japan, you know, he's probably been to our farm more than 20 times and, and us to his farm more than 10. And, he will always tell me what, what, how they do it in Japan. And then I've learned over the years that I have to adapt that to Australian conditions. And 
not all the commodities they use in Japan, we can get them in Australia. And, and, and you know, some of the ones that they use are too expensive to use in Australia. So it's a matter of adapting those Japanese techniques to Australian conditions. Yeah, can we settle something right here and now? Uh, David, were you the first person to bring actual Wagyu cattle into Australia or bring straws into Australia? Look, I, it's, it's between me and a fellow by the name of Peter Winkler, who was a ear, nose and throat specialist in Sydney. Look, I don't say, I, I just say I was, I, was, I was a pioneer. You know, there's no no doubt that we were right in there from the very start. Um, I started working Wagyu before Peter Winkler, but it, look, it's debatable whether he got embryos in before me or I got it before him. And in those days, it was only purebred. Yes, but you did go into F1s and F2s uh, at the start, didn't you, before you made a decision? Yeah, to... we did start, and, yes. and, and in the end, um, we were sending that meat directly to Japan and um, through a Japanese company, Nippon Meat Packers, um, which owns Oki Abattoir and, and um, Wyala Feedlots. And they were very, very. We had a really good relationship, and, and they were very good to me. They, they paid me, took me to Japan, paid for all the trips, wouldn't even let me buy a bottle of water on more than ten occasions. And you know that got me through all the universities, through all the research centres in Japan on farm. I actually saw our beef unloaded from the wharf off the ship, and 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 go right through the whole process until it was being sold in the supermarket. So that was also. You know, a trem- tremendous experience that, um, you know, is not, not offered to Westerners. Let's take a break from On The Grill, our guest today, leading Wagyu producer David Blackmore. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the Buffalo Fly Battle now. Welcome back. I'm speaking on the grill with David Blackmore, one of Australia's and indeed one of the world's leading Wagyu producers. David, uh, is it true you, the biggest component of your difference is the feed you actually give your purebred wagyus it's um, considered, look, I, considerably look, different from the mainstream and and I know is it a highly kept secret the actual the component of the feed you you give them yeah no we won't we definitely don't divulge our ration um, it's taken you know, 30 years to develop and and, and, it, and it is it's so different to traditional feedlot rations in fact we we can't claim the grain fed label um, with our wagyu we I think you've got to have 50% grain, and we don't have 50% grain left. We have much less than 50% grain in our ration. So it's a very high, um, high roughage ration. Look, we're, we're, we, we used to aim to try and get 0.8 of a kilo daily gain from the time they were born to the time they were slaughtered. That's pretty good um, for a wag. That's pretty good for a wag. You then, they were infamous, uh, bad doers, aren't they? Yeah, that, and, yeah. and especially on a, on a high roughage diet and to keep that even. Um, Look, to be honest now, with genetics and you know, learning what we're doing, we're, we're probably averaging over a kilo now a day, wow. daily gain from the day they're born to the day they're slaughtered. And yeah. we don't want to see ups and downs. You know, we don't want to no. see ups and downs with the, with the, um, the climate or you know, whatever, whatever it be. Did you sell part of the recipe to a Wagyu breeder in America? So what we did actually was we sold a license 
to our intellectual property and, and, and also what the lawyers put into the contracts was MOP, method of production. So we sold a license to a guy over there and it was for half a million dollars and, and um, it was um, for uh, five years that they could basically ask anything that they wanted to do. They also bought a heap of genetics office, embryos and semen. Um, he thought, the guy in America thought it was really cheap. He said, oh, God, he said, I can't buy a, 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 a consultant for $100,000 a year and not certainly not one with your experience. So he thought he got good value. We made him pay up front because we didn't want him to pay 100000 the first year and drop out after he'd learned a fair bit. So the money had to come up front, which it was. But in that, he was never allowed to use our brand name and he was never... He got a scientific analysis of the ration, but not of the actual commodities we use. Because as the Japanese say, a lot of those different commodities in our ration are fed in harmony. They they help one another. It's like if I go and have a heap of chocolate, I probably got the probably got the runs, you know. So, but if you eat a little bit of chocolate with a whole heap of other different food, you're probably safe. Uh, it's an old expression, David. The proof is in the pudding. But in your case, in Wagyu, the proof is in the marbling. Here's a couple of quotes I've read about what an American high-end restaurant said about your Wagyu. When they taste-tested it versus some Wagyu from Japan, the result, they could not tell the difference. And locally, of course, the well-known chef Neil Perry from the Rockville chain of uh, high-end restaurants gives you a huge rap, as do other notable chefs here and overseas, the UK, France, Asia, etc. It's It's all over the world. But the intrinsic part of your beef... What is the difference, apart from that ration, secret herbs and spices, etc., that you feed your Wagyu, what is the intrinsic difference from other Wagyu? I think, Kerry, right from day one, um, and and again, because of my dairy background, um, from day one, I wanted to breed a herd of breeding cows that from them produced great carcasses. Most stud breeders of any breed go into the breed Probably with the goal to sell bulls, to breed bulls and sell bulls. Well, certainly in the early days, we were getting a lot more money for a carcass than we were for a bull. So that was an easy decision for me to make and say, you know, we're, we're going into this just to breed meat. And, you know, we, I, I think in the elite sale coming up um, in the end of April, the Wagyu elite sale, um, that's the first time we're going to sell a bull. We're going to, the first time we've ever sold a, a full blood animal at auction. Um, and um, we've our goal was always to try and breed cows. In fact, I still do now. When I'm selecting the genetics, I'm still very conscious of what the females, as replacements going back in the herd, will be. You know, I think I think you'll find that our cattle are quite a bit taller and heavier than most Wagyu cattle. Um, and, and certainly as a herd, I don't haven't seen anything else in Australia that. And and in the breed plan figures that I get told about. Um, our cattle certainly rate very high for carcass weight. What's your, what's your view, David, of the current Wagyu picture in Australia? I mean, we have so many Wagyu and so many producers are converting or have converted to Wagyu, and I'm talking about F1s and F2s, etc. very few purebreds at present, but uh, it's Wagyu everywhere. It's probably our most popular beef breed by notice. They read about it more often than any other breed. What's what's your view of the current Wagyu status? So my view is that you know, your customers, you've got to look after your customers. I still have, I, I, I've got, I don't worry about what anybody else is doing. You know, we're just trying to make 
make a living ourselves. Um, but I still have an issue when you're looking after your customers that they don't understand the difference between an F1, a, 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 an animal that's sired by a Wagyu bull out of another breed, uh, against the full blood. And, um, and there's certainly a, a difference in the eating experience between the two. Um, I, a few years ago, I did speak to um, Osley and said, you know, if, if you're talking about uh, using a breed as a descriptor of the brand, um, what's, the, what's, what's the certification? And they said, well, that breed must be the, have the major genetics in that, in, in that animal. Now, an F1 is 50-50 at best, and, and um, that doesn't meet the criteria. And when I challenged them, they said, well, I think it's out of control. We can't do anything about it. So that's my only issue is that I don't believe the customer is being looked after if the true use of the word Wagyu is not being used. Time for a quick break, and this time we're hearing from our podcast partner, Kelly's Finance Group. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. I'm speaking on the grill with David Blackmore, one of Australia's and indeed one of the world's leading Wagyu producers. So do you think we, uh, we have too many Wagyu in Australia? Is Wagyu in danger of perhaps losing its high-end boutique status in the marketplace? Look, I, no, I don't, I don't think. Um, look, to be honest, we don't, we don't send any beef to Japan. We haven't since the F1 left two days. Um, so it's I don't know, probably 15 years or more since we sent anything to Japan. But we do compete with Japanese Wagyu right around the world. Um, and our brand is holding up very well. Um, we certainly haven't lost any market share, and I know that there are some restaurants that prefer our beef over the Japanese Wagyu, and, and, and the reason being is that the Japanese Wagyu is still much richer than ours, and, and they, they, they have One thing that the Japanese Wagyu have got that ours haven't is that um, we're still trying, we're still trying to get to the size of the eye muscle that the Japanese can produce. They're excellent in that area. But I, I look, I, I think at the end of the day, um, the mar- I'm a great believer in the market will sort itself out, and that's why I explain. It. You know, we're still holding market share, and and don't have and got our meat in the restaurants that we wanted in, um, and that's you know the fine dining, the very top of the fine dining restaurant. So, I think at the end of the day, if somebody eats an F1 Wagyu and they're not happy with the experience, you know, they won't go back. Is there a place, David, do you think, for Wagyu genetics and cattle breeding just just for their marbling quality? To me, marbling is a bit overrated. I, I look I'm probably a bit blase about marbling. I concentrate probably more so on a, a lot of other traits. Um, you know, I concentrate on, 
on size. I certainly concentrate on constitution. You know, you've got a real problem with wages. If they're too frail, they can't, you know, look after themselves on grass. And, and, you know, we certainly want to use our breeding herd solely on grass. We don't give any supplementary feeding to that. Otherwise, it gets too expensive. I, you know, we concentrate on, on making sure that we've got milk in our waggy so that at least the, the cow can raise a calf for five months of age. And then the other thing is, it's really, it, I think, becoming an issue is that the fertility. You know, you want your cows to have a calf every year, and if your raggy gets too frail, she won't get back in calf. So I think there's probably a really um, more of the terminal sire is probably where they're going to sit. You know, we got to F2s and we're starting to juice F3 carcasses and the full blood came along and I jumped straight into the full blood because even once we get into F3s, we still couldn't get the consistency in our meat quality that we that certainly that we get in our full blood now. You, David, you often speak of sustainability in farming and grazing practices, uh, but you also stress, mind you, there's no point in being sustainable without making a profit. Is that the basis of your farming practices? Yeah, look, one of the things where it first hit home to me is that we've won a lot of Pluvi awards and, and um, you know, you'd go along to the awards this year and there'd be some new product and, you know, often it was something to do with organics or whether it be, you know, cheeses or whether it be fruit or veggies, whatever, and heirlooms, you know, vegetables and all these sorts of things. And, you know, they were getting a good rap at the Pluvi awards, but they weren't there the next year. And, and because obviously, you know, the consumer doesn't really like paying for a premium. And if they are, they want to know what they're getting. And, you know, if you go and selecting an apple and it's got a, a little borer hole in it or it's got a rub mark because it's rubbed on the branch, you know, that'll stay there on the shelf. Um, people still want to buy, you know, use their eyes when they're buying. So, yeah, if, if you're not, as it's proving, if, if you're not making a profit, you're not Time for just one more question, David, and it's about your hobby. Uh, I think it's a hobby, a late career hobby, the Rubia Galiga project, which uh, these cattle, the Rubia Galiga, I think that's how you pronounce it, they're from Spain. Tell us what that story is. Ten years ago, we were in our um, distribution centre of our French distributor, and we saw this huge um, strip lawn, dry ageing, and it was just massive, and it had a heap of marbling in it. And it looked like a really good F1 product. And and we said to them, you know, what's that? And they said, well, is it, you know, it's F1. We've never seen an F1 that big. And they said, well, it's not an F1, but we're not going to tell you. And they actually got it down and we, they cut a bit off and they uh, cut quite a bit off, thank goodness. They wouldn't and tell we went back to their David, house and David, had a barbecue. David, just where were you when you tasted this beef? We're, we were in, in the, the, the French distributor's home. We were having a barbecue lunch okay, at home. Okay, right. And, and, um, and finally we found out what it was, and that it wasn't actually a French breed. It was a Spanish breed. After you know, a lot of hassle getting it out, getting breeders to talk to us, the Breed Association tried to stop us. Um, I believe even the government tried to stop us bringing the genetics out of Spain. It had never left Spain before. Um, it was sort of known around the world that it, it had one best stake a couple of times at that state competition, a world state competition. Um, and um, But it took us 10 years to be able to, from that point, to be able to get the meat into the restaurants in Australia, and we've only got a small amount coming in now, um, And but we're building up as quickly as we can. The goal in working with the Ruby Glear was actually um, to try and produce 
a grass-fed product, nothing, not competing with our Wagyu at all, but produce a, a grass-raised product. And that was better than anything, better than an Angus grass-raised, because that certainly got the, you know, the tick for being the best product in Australia that's grass-raised. And do, trying to do something better than Angus. And uh, so far, the bits that we've, little bits that we've sent to restaurants, they're, they're you know, ordering more. Look forward to the Rubia Galiga story, but you just provoked one last question. That is, is there a is there room in the industry for grass-fed Wagyu? And look, we the reason we did look elsewhere other than Wagyu is that we just cannot get our can't get the quality and including the consistent quality in Wagyu off pasture off grass. And um, they've got to be four and five year old. And for me, that's not sustainable. That's not profitable. Um, we just cannot get get the quality in them on grass beef. David, congratulations on your outstanding contribution to the Wagyu world, to the beef industry, and for examples you've shown the world for sustainable, regenerative beef production. David Blackmore, congratulations, and thank you for being on The Grill. Thanks, Kerry. Bye. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time. I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.